1: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Because you have to remember that this crime is about stealing something that's of value to the victim. The criminal needs to move beyond just understanding computers, they need to also understand the business model, the data, the value of the victim. To do that, they need to be able to comprehend the language. And so we think that to some extent, the shape of the victims is determined by cultural factors like, like language, as well as just, you know, how many, uh, how many possible victims there are in a given industry or in a given space.
1: I am Eugenia Lohdry, Lawfare's Fellow in Technology Policy and Law, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 11th, 2023. Since at least May 27th, the club ransomware gang has been exploiting a previously unknown vulnerability to exfiltrate data from financial services organizations, energy corporations, government agencies, and even universities. The group appears to be changing tactics, while it was previously known for its use of the double extortion tactic of stealing and encrypting victim data, it seems to now be relying mostly on data exfiltration instead. To discuss the latest changes in the ransomware ecosystem, I sat down with Charles Vanderwald, head of security research at Orange Cyber Defense. Charles is one of the authors of a report analyzing recent cyber extortion activity. We talked about the ransomware as a service ecosystem the impact the Russian invasion of Ukraine had on ransomware activity in the past year, and what law enforcement is doing to disrupt cyber criminal networks. It's the Lawfare Podcast for July 11th. Charles Vanderbilt on cyber extortion. So, Charles, could you maybe start by telling us a little bit about what we know about the COP ransomware gang, the move-it vulnerability, and where things stand in trying to counter it?
0: Yeah, of course. Hi. So the story really started unfolding at the beginning of June, uh, but it probably dates back several weeks before that. Uh, And what we know is this, uh, is affiliates of a cyber extortion gang called Klopp discovered and started using a vulnerability in a software product called Move IT. Uh, It's a common product uh, used by enterprises worldwide, primarily in the US, but also in e- Europe and the UK and elsewhere. And the product allows for the transfer of files between enterprises. It's a common use case, you, you wanna share files with your business partners, with your providers, etc. So you share them via this platform. And the platform had a bug in it, uh, which led to a security vulnerability. Uh, it was undiscovered, in other words, uh, what we call a zero day, meaning you really couldn't patch for it even if you knew about it at the time. And these uh, affiliates of Klopp started using that bug to compromise the MoveIT servers at their, you know, where they where they were installed at MoveIT's customers worldwide, and um they they did that quietly, I think, with uh, with it mostly going unnoticed and then announced that they had done it. And at the time, we were estimating somewhere between 1,000 and 3,000 servers would have been vulnerable and uh, exposed to the internet. Uh, then they sucked up the data that they found on those servers and made an announcement that they would uh, leak that data if a ransom wasn't paid. And then they did something which is quite unusual in that space, which is rather than approaching the victims directly, they sort of put out a general call to action that said, look, if you're using the software, you've probably been compromised. We probably have your data. You need to reach out to us so we can negotiate a, a ransom. And as you mentioned, as of two days ago, the total number of businesses who were impacted through uh, the sort of cascade of compromises uh, totaled 130, as far as we know.
1: So you mentioned that there are affiliates of the club. Talk a little bit more about that. What does that mean?
0: Yeah, so in the criminal ecosystem, there's a form of cybercrime that we refer to as cyber extortion. I think most people know it as as ransomware. It involves compromising a business, stealing something from that business, and then ransoming it back. Now, the crime is is conducted in in phases. There's the there's the initial discovery of a vulnerability, maybe the compromise of a of a business. That's maybe phase one. Then there's the the process of moving through that business, discovering their IT system, stealing and exfiltrating the data, and possibly encrypting computers so that they can't be used by the legitimate owner. And then finally, there's the process of uh, negotiating the ransom, shaming the victim via uh, what we call a leak site, and accepting payment of the ransom if it if it all goes that way. And in the ecosystem, there are generally considered to be three kinds of players. There's what we call initial access brokers, which do the initial hacking, and compromise a business. They then on sell that compromise to what's called an affiliate, which does the generally does the lateral movement, the encryption, and the exfiltration. And uh, and then finally the the. Publication on a leak site, and the negotiation is is done via the what's known as the ransomware operator. So the operator facilitates that third phase of the of the crime, but also often provides uh, tooling such as the the malicious software, the ransomware that's used to do encryption, other hacking tools, and then of course uh, the infrastructure that's required to make all of this work. So what we believe is that the uh, Move IT incident was perpetrated by an affiliate of CLOP. And uh, it's generally referred to as uh, FIN11, I think, is is what's most commonly known. Uh, So maybe not CLOP themselves, but rather uh, a separate group which works with them in that sort of affiliate relationship.
1: Right. Thanks for that. And would you say that this is an uh, example of ransomware as a
0: service? It it is and it isn't. It's an unusual case. Uh, In ransomware as a service, typically an affiliate will profit share with an operator to get access to the ransomware software. And then that affiliate may or may not do their own hacking. They may, as I said, buy the compromise from an initial access broker. But in this case, it's unusual for for a number of reasons. The, The major one being that actually they didn't use ransomware. They simply stole the data and then threatened to leak it. So it's not quite typical ransomware as a service. In a normal ransomware as a service operation, you would expect the affiliate to be using the ransomware provided by the operator and then to do encryption of the computers in order to extract the ransom. And this wasn't quite that.
1: So your organization recently published a report looking into some of the trends during uh, 2022 for what you call cyber extortion. Um, so what did you observe in terms of the number of attacks, uh, especially compared to previous years?
0: Yeah, so uh, let me just clarify firstly what it is that we're mostly able to observe. So in that model that I described to you is referred to often as what we call double extortion. And what happens there is that there's the hack, the data is exfiltrated by the, by the criminals stolen out of the network, and then the computer is encrypted. So when the ransom arrives, the ransom note arrives, the, the demand is sort of comes with a, a double threat. The first is that if you want your computers back, you're going to have to pay the ransom and you can get the key, the encryption key. But even if you don't want the encryption key, the attackers threaten to leak the data in, uh, in order to sort of exert more uh, pressure, I suppose on the victims, and they do that using these leak sites, which are on the dark web but are publicly visible. you can see them you can and the whole point is really to to shame the victims so they you know they're made to be seen, and often a lot of effort actually goes into them and what we're able to do is to track the victims on those leak sites and that probably represents, we think, about a quarter of all of these incidents. Uh, Because it's only what we call observable cyber extortion because it's been made public by the criminal. Now, using that method, since 2020, we've observed about 7,500 victims to date. And in 2022, Two, we saw for the first time actually a slight decrease, a decrease of about 8%. But we had already started seeing in the beginning of 2023 that that trajectory was changing. And in fact, month for month now, since the beginning of 23, we've continued to see new record highs. The second quarter of this year, uh, observing just under a 1,000 victims in one quarter. Which is which is maybe four times as high as we'd seen in 2021. Uh, so in general, there's been this upward trend since the since this criminal business model emerged uh, early in 2020, and then it it sort of peaked in 21, dipped a little in 22, and now it's just shot through the roof in uh, in 23 so far, and that doesn't seem to be slowing at all.
1: Do you have any sense of why we saw that dip last year and why it's increasing now?
0: We've got some theories. The, the one is that it's, it's very noticeable how closely the dip seems to correspond with the war against Ukraine. And we have a sense that since so many of these operators and affiliates are based out of, uh, out of that area, what we call the former CIS countries, Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, uh, we have a sense that just like everyone else, they were quite possibly just disrupted by the war. You can imagine, uh, you know, if, uh, if your country is either at war or being invaded, then there's other things going on. And uh, we, we have the sense that the war just had a generally disruptive effect on this form of crime. I think that's the one That's the one theory we have. The other is that there was a particular group, a group called Conti, who were probably the, the sort of big dogs in, in town, up until late in twenty one where they kind of imploded also incidentally as a weird side effect of the war, they imploded, and with them, the numbers dipped temporarily uh, but like we 've often seen before the the, the people involved in conti, the business opportunities were still there, so they sort of reformed. Uh, we think that the, the the criminal ecosystem kind of collected itself, maybe uh, after a few months, and that's why the the numbers are picking up again in twenty three.
1: So you mentioned before the uh, different actors that are involved in these schemes, and in the report you liken this to a, a gig economy approach. So talk a little bit more about that. Why is that, and what does it actually entail?
0: I think it's what I what I touched on on earlier. What what we're looking at is a is a real ecosystem of actors that operate online and interact with each other in, in a in a really complex web of uh, of commercial relationships. And I, I mentioned already the um, initial access brokers, which do the which do the hacking. They then use digital marketplaces on the dark web to sell those accesses onto the affiliates. The affiliates, uh, in turn, do I suppose the the dirty work of stealing and uh, and, exfiltra- and exfiltrating and encrypting the data. And then you've got the the operators who sort of act as the the hub in all of this. But that's only some of them. You also then have professionals who um, write the malicious software, write the malware, develop the infrastructure. Uh, do research in order to identify uh, victims, conduct the negotiations. And we think that the relationships between all of those people with each other are, are ephemeral. You know, there's uh, every reason to believe that uh, one player in this group will leave one group and join another or that a group will splinter and then reform in subgroups. Uh, so it's this kind of really nebulous, ever-changing uh, ecosystem with uh, consisting of specialists who come together to to uh, run a project, if you like, or, or uh, conduct a campaign, and then may fall apart again and reform in some other place.
1: So, I want to spend some time uh, talking about the other side of the equation, which is the victims. So, what type of organizations are using targeted the most?
0: Uh, you raise a you raise a good question, and uh, you, you sort of t- pushed a button for me in terms of uh, targeting. Uh, targeting is a very difficult uh, thing to to ascertain because we're not really seeing the actor at play we're not seeing the criminal at play. we're seeing the effect of what they do and so we have to deduce from that effect what their intent was and uh, you know that's that's obviously an, an imperfect science but we can we can see some patterns. One of those patterns is that the, the number of victims, if you look at it regionally, if you look at the number of victims per country, then we see that that tends to track the number of businesses in that country. And we think that's true not only for countries, but also for uh, sectors or or. Or industry, so there's a correlation between the number of victims we see and the number of potential victims in a in a given grouping, if you like. And that suggests to us that the victims are not being deliberately selected, but rather that we're seeing a kind of uh, a kind of opportunistic approach. I I sometimes say it's like uh, it's like throwing mud at a map. You know, you you the the mud is going to land more on the bigger countries. It's the same sort of same sort of effect, um, and that I think is primarily what's what's happening. And we've anecdotally seen evidence of that by being able to observe communications between actors in some of these groups, and it's it's sometimes really uh, disturbing to see how cynical they are about the victims. You know, we've observed conversations where they're arguing with one another about whether a given victim is a hospital or not. So uh, groups like Conti and others have made policy decisions to avoid kind of really sensitive targets like, like hospitals. Uh, and now they, they've hacked somebody. And having hacked them, they're now debating with one another about whether they're a hospital or or not. So the numbers and that sort of anecdotal observation gives us the sense that it's really mostly opportunistic rather than, uh, rather than targeted. But it does give a shape then to the victimology, because what we see primarily is that the big English-speaking economies uh, suffer the most. Like So most of the victims would be located in places like the USA, Canada, the UK, Germany, France, Italy, maybe to an extent. And then it sort of goes down as the countries get, get smaller. What I would add to that, though, which I think is interesting, is that we do see some very notable exceptions. For example, in China we see far fewer victims than we would expect to see given the size of their economy. The same is true for places like Poland, places like Japan, India even, which just seem underrepresented in the numbers given how many potential victims uh, there are. And so the second major factor uh, that we believe is sort of a truism is that they tend to favor victims whose languages they can understand. Uh, Because you have to remember that this crime is about stealing something that's of value to the victim. The criminal needs to move beyond just understanding computers. They need to also understand the business model, the data, the value of the victim. To do that, they need to be able to comprehend the language. And so we think that to some extent the shape of the victim's is determined by cultural factors like like language, as well as just you know how many uh, how many possible uh, victims there are in a given industry or in a given space.
1: So so that's interesting, and I've seen reports, and I think your report also shows that there's, however, a bit of a shift or an, an increase, at least, in ransomware attacks um, against organizations based in places where you would. Maybe expect it a bit less. Um, like I, I know that I've heard that there's an increase in Latin America, for example. Is that also what you're saying? And if so, why do you think that is the case?
0: Yeah, we we are seeing that exactly. Uh, again, I just need I just need to caveat because you know um, ch- changes vary uh, depending on the period that you're looking at, right? So if we look at the last three months, we might see a different pattern to what we would have seen in the three months prior to that, but. If we do a year on year comparison, for example, between 2021 and 2022, there are some patterns that appear to be consistent over time. And, and the first is that we see the number of victims in the USA decreasing. So over that particular period, uh, the number of victims in the USA decreased by 21%. The number of victims in Canada decreased by 28%. 28%. And similarly, the trajectory for uh, Europe seems to be flat or trending downward. For Australia and New Zealand seems to be flat or trending downward. And, uh, and the UK also seems to be trending downward. But on the other hand, we see regions that were previously impacted less like particularly Latin America, the Nordics, uh, East Asia, uh, increasing quite considerably, albeit off a smaller base. So over that period, 21 to 22, we saw increases in Southeast Asia of 42%, in the Nordics of 40%, Latin America, 32%, Africa, 19%. And what we think that signals is that there might be something of a withdrawal from those previously popular regions. So that the actors are maybe steering away from high-profile victims in places like the USA and Europe um, and choosing rather to focus on uh, less politically sensitive uh threatening geographies as in Latin America or Africa. And the reason for that we think could could be various. Uh, one might be simply that they're finding it harder to find fresh targets in in places like America and, and Canada. The other though might be that they are responding to a kind of pushback that they're experiencing from governments in places like uh, the US and uh, and from within her, her allies and in Europe. Uh, because increasingly what we're seeing is that law enforcement agencies, regulators, even uh, intelligence and military agencies are taking this form of crime seriously and starting to proactively push back against the criminals and we think that what might be happening is that the criminals are being more cautious about targeting those big muscled countries if you like and rather seeking businesses in other geographies where they don't have that sort of uh, political and legal and regulatory muscle uh, to throw at them
1: so kind of building on that and touching back on something that you mentioned before which is the impact of Russia's invasion on Ukraine do you think that it, precisely because there is kind of this stronger response, it's why you've seen less of a, you know, impact on Ukraine, Ukraine's allies, um, the NATO countries?
0: Uh, yeah, another great question. That's that's not a hundred percent clear to me. Where we see pushback, it generally impacts a group, and then we might see disruption in the activities of that group momentarily. But we haven't yet seen anything to suggest that law enforcement pushback or, uh, you know, regulatory pushback of any form is having a long-lasting effect on uh, on the trajectory of the crime. So I, I don't think that the patterns that we saw corresponding with the war in Ukraine, um, had much to do with, um, with this kind of push, pushback. Rather, you know, we see individual groups maybe recoiling. Uh, and I mentioned the Conti group, uh, which imploded just at the start of the war, which I think is a factor which probably made a, had a direct, uh, impact on the numbers that we saw overall, but Conti wasn't in interrupted or disrupted, uh, externally by law enforcement. As far as we know, as far as we know, Conti imploded because they had a difference of opinion with each other about allegiances during the war.
1: You mentioned before the double extortion schemes, and one of the trends that we see is that double or triple extortion schemes are becoming more common. Uh, can you explain what these tactics are, how they're evolving, uh, what you expect to see
0: so a- again we we like to emphasize that what we're dealing with here is the crime of extortion and extortion in the way we define it involves compromising a victim and taking something from them that's of value and then bargaining with that value uh, in exchange for a payment of a ransom. When it started, the typical methodology involved deploying malware to encrypt computers. And that was really an attack on the availability of that computer all that data. The business simply couldn't operate without it. And uh, it proved to be a very ex- successful uh, modus operandi, but came short when the victim was able to recover independently. So if the victim had uh, backups, for example, or some sort of redundancy, then they wouldn't have to pay. They could just continue to operate uh, without the computer. Or even if the victim calculated that recovering would be cheaper than paying the ransom, you know, rebuilding systems, for example, then they wouldn't pay the ransom. And that then uh, prompted an evolution in the crime into what is sort of generally called double extortion, I think is still just extortion, which is when they not only encrypted the data, but also threatened to leak the data. So there were these sort of two levers they would use, and even if the victim felt that they could recover without paying the ransom, they might feel that they couldn't recover from the uh, from the shame, if you like, or the damage to reputation that might ensue if they if they didn't pay and if the data uh, data got got leaked. And then the criminals continue to to evolve and to innovate, which is a pattern we see all the time. And started introducing even more forms of extortion. So another form of extortion might be the threat of a denial of service attack. They might threaten to flood your website or make your email unavailable if you don't pay up. Or they might threaten to reveal other truths or other facts that, that, that you might find uh, uh, shameful. Like they would threaten to leak the transcript of the negotiation. Uh, they might threaten to reveal the names of the actual um, negotiators. So if the company, for example, uh, show, proved to be reticent to pay and expressed that in the negotiation, the, the criminals might disclose that as a way of showing that the company didn't care about their clients. So these sort of evolutions in um, the, the details of the extortion are are happening all the time and um, are happening in different ways with different different actors. And and all the while they're they're also innovating in the if you like the cynical precision with which the extortion happens. Uh, for example, by gamifying the extortion process. Some of the actors reveal the name of the victim on their website uh, one character at a time, you know, so that your name becomes visible at the sort of excruciatingly slow pace. Others um, make their leak sites searchable so that researchers and journalists and others can easily uh, find out if someone's a victim. Others use like really flashy websites uh, with, you know, all kinds of, um, we saw one, for example, where when you chatted with them on the website during the extortion, you got assigned a character from um, from the Harry Potter series. And the facial expressions of the character would change depending on whether the negotiation was going bad, well, or or had failed. Uh, and so there's all these mechanisms that they use to really kind of push emotion into the whole negotiation and to uh, pressure the victim ultimately to pay.
1: So I want to move us to the issue of rebranding. And you've already touched on this. You talked about how some groups split, how they need to rebrand. So maybe let's Go into that a bit deeper. Could you explain why they need to do this and what does it actually entail?
0: Yeah. So I, I mean, it's interesting that these groups have brands at all, uh, and it kind of speaks to some of the some of the methodology, I guess. Uh, so many of these these gangs will will label themselves. They'll present as someone, you know, Conti, Klopp, Hive, Reval. You name it. There's, you know, they've got all these, uh, They've got all these, uh, fancy, fancy names that they assign generally to themselves when, when they put their league sites up or somewhere in the, in the malware that they produce, there'll, there'll be some sort of brand element. And we then tend to consider that a group. As I mentioned earlier, I think we have to be careful because a brand does not necessarily represent a coherent tightly organized you know political structure it's it's a brand that a that a group of these operators have uh, have adopted and the brand is important because of course it adds it adds fear to the uh, to the extortion process but it also adds credibility to the extortion process so we'll often see during negotiations when a victim is resistant to pay, uh, you know, the victim will often say, well, you know, how do I know that you'll respect our deal? How do I know that you'll give me the key? How do I know that you'll delete the data you've stolen? And the response to that often comes in the form of brand. They'll say, well, we are Klopp. We are Lockbit. Uh, you can you can check our track record. Here it is. Here's all the victims that we've dealt with in the past. So brand is very important for them in maintaining that coercive relationship with victims and potential victims. But it's also important uh, in terms of maintaining relationships within the criminal ecosystem. You know, it's it's difficult for criminals to do business with each other. They are, you know, by nature, criminal. And so there's always this fear of being, um, of being duped, of being robbed, of being ratted on, for lack of a better word. And and so the brand of a group is an expression of their trustworthiness within the criminal system. And then finally, of course, the brand is also how law enforcement and defenders and researchers and journalists uh, start to identify these, uh, these groups, rightly or wrongly. And so what we see is that activity uh, follows brand uh, a lot of the time. Uh, and what I mean by that is that when Conti collapsed, for example, we spoke about that earlier, then our narrative is that the Conti group collapsed, Conti is now gone, where Conti is actually just this uh, this this grouping of of criminals who are operating operating together, and so what we often see is that once a group like Conti collapses, then those people will reorganize reemerge. Using parts or all of the infrastructure, parts or all of the relationships and simply reform into, into another group that uh, continues, you know, continues operations. And this might happen because the group collapses. So it may be, you know, some, some sort of uh, structural failure in, in, in their organization, but it could also be deliberate. They may deliberately choose to reorganize. Uh, For example, if they feel like their reputation has been tarnished within the criminal ecosystem and they're no longer considered trustworthy, then they'll do a brand refresh and and reorganize maybe just as a new version of themselves or maybe as a set of splinter groups. Uh, Occasionally, they might merge with a different group. Uh, they'll do the same thing if they feel their brand is attracting too much attention from those, uh, those law enforcement and regulatory efforts that we spoke about earlier. They might then say, oh gosh, you know, uh, Conti or Lockbit's getting a, it's getting too much heat. So we're just going to let that dissolve. We'll lose some of the brand uh, equity that we have, but we can, we can launch with a, with a fresh brand again and, uh, and avoid that kind of pressure. In some ways, they even avoid specific regulatory um, mechanisms like sanctions. The U.S., as you probably know better than I do, has a, has a financial mechanism by which groups that are considered to, to be associated with things like uh, arms dealing or terrorism or uh, I think some other forms of crime can get sanctioned uh, thereby prohibiting a victim from paying them even if they wanted to. But that sanctioning also refers to a group name. And so by dissolving that group name and creating another one, they can avoid those kinds of mechanisms. And so in 2022, we saw 16 groups rebrand, meaning we, we could identify who they were before, and they're now operating in one or more uh, new identities. And we saw 19 groups emerge that we had never uh, seen before. In the first quarter of 23, that was four groups that we saw rebrand and eight groups emerged that we hadn't seen before.
1: So in your line of work as cyber defenders, how do you adapt to this rebranding? How do you track you know, which groups are emerging that are related to one that you saw disband before? What are some of the signals that you look for?
0: Yeah. So I kind of need to answer that question with two different hats on. And, th- and let me start with the first hat, which is, a, which is a research hat. So as a researcher, whether that's sort of general multidisciplinary research like I do or, or what we would call threat intelligence that specifically seeks to uh, track these groups, basically there's a lot of elbow grease involved in tying together the threads that connect old versions and new versions of the same group so that might be for example that they're using the same infrastructure Uh, it might be that you see websites being rebranded or the same website being used Uh, we might be able to identify players that are consistent across the different groups Uh, we might see language on the dark web forums where these uh, where these actors interact with each other that gives us clues to to a consistency if you like in the in the grouping. And then, you know, if if that's not successful, then the the next layer is to, is to examine the the tooling that they use and look for overlaps in the tooling. So that could be the, you know, the hacking tools, the persistence tools that they use. It could be the servers that they use for command and control, but most often it comes down to the actual malicious software. And uh, when software is uh reused, or even if it's adapted or evolved, you can generally tell that one piece of malicious software is derivative from another piece of malicious software. And so that allows us to deduce that, you know, that those two groups are, are derivative of uh, of one another. But I, I think I have to be clear and say it's, I, it's not a science. It's, well, it's at least as much art as it is science. And it's very possible that we are misrepresenting or overrepresenting these these groupings. And there there are researchers who feel that the number of brands that we see gives us the false impression that the that the ecosystem is actually bigger than it is. But if I put a second hat on, which is the hat of the defenders, now you're talking about someone who's responsible for actually protecting a network or a system. I gotta say that for most businesses, it probably doesn't matter that much that they rebranded. What really matters is that we're able to identify and respond to the, uh, the tactics, techniques and procedures that these groups use and that we're able to identify and uh, disrupt the what we would call the indicators of attack or the indicators of compromise. So the, you know, the, the markers of their malware, the markers of the domains and the IP addresses they use, the kinds of uh, exploits, the vulnerabilities and exploits they use the, the telltale signs on the phishing lures that they use. And that kind of intelligence actually emerges from the security industry relatively rapidly and relatively freely. And so if you're plugged into, you know, decent kind of antivirus or endpoint protection, if you're plugged into decent um, managed security services, content filtering, web filtering, all of those sorts of things, then you're probably benefiting from that without having actually to be too fussed about, you know, which particular version of which particular group it is that you're dealing with at any given time.
1: So I might, you know, come out from from this conversation feeling maybe a little bit skeptical of some of the disruption efforts that we've seen in the last few years. You know, if we look at the evolution of tactics, if you look at these trends that you're talking about, the increase, if you talk about the rebranding and how, you know, you might call one group out, but then there are just, you know, four more are going to pop out. Do you think that the disruption efforts are addressing the, the right concerns?
0: I think that we are starting to steer very positively in the right direction. When you, when you study crime and you consider you know, why crime happens and how you, how you disrupt crime, it, it becomes clear that you've got a few levers that you can, that you can tug on you can you can try and put protections in place you know like security controls guards gates those sorts of things uh, you can try and make yourself less attractive as a victim or you can put guardians in place that kind of act as a deterrent to the uh, to the criminal and what we've been seeing accelerating through 2022 and and even more so into 2023 is is governments taking a whole a wholly more holistic view of what those what those mechanisms are what those levers are and starting to experiment with with a variety of of them and I think it's I think it's fair to say that those actions uh, do have an impact they do have an effect uh, but I think it's I, I think it's perhaps slower and less obvious than we would like to see. So I, I do think that for example, regulating cryptocurrency exchanges, which are the mechanisms that that these criminals use to to get payment, I, I think it makes it more makes it more expensive makes it more difficult for the for the criminal and not just the exchanges but the the sort of money laundering ecosystem that exists and operates around those exchanges I, I think that's a I think that's an effective that places an effective cost on the on the criminals but the other actions that we've seen are things like uh, indictments which you know realistically don't don't seek an arrest of the criminal, but really just try and put a, a damper on their personal freedoms, right? Access to accounts, freedom to travel, those sorts of things. Uh, we see uh, what they call doxing, which is where information about the criminal is leaked online, which I think uh, damages their reputation as people and as criminals, and I think limits their, their personal freedoms. And then we've seen efforts to... Uh, you know, raise the costs for the criminal, the technical costs, and they do. Law enforcement does that through um, infrastructure takedowns, so you know, hacking and destroying their uh, servers, sowing sowing discord in the in the forums where they operate. You know, pretending to be one actor, uh, giving the impression that a that a, a group is maybe being infiltrated. Uh, giving the impression that infrastructures may be being compromised by law enforcement I think those things do have an impact but where we're able to observe them we kind of see mixed results so conti as I mentioned Im- imploded uh, but really they they quite quickly sort of reconstituted and they seem to be I say they but Aspects of them, elements of them, seem to be carrying on, kind of business as uh, as usual. Reval uh, was the was the subject of actually a very unusual incident, where for the first time, uh, and the only time that we're aware of, uh, they were targeted by Russian law enforcement, and there was a, there was a number of arrests. That didn't seem to have any impact on them but they closed down later i think for completely unrelated reasons uh, and then more recently we've got the example of hive a group called hive leaks and that appears by all accounts to have been a very successful operation by the by the us fbi they had infiltrated the, comp- the fbi had infiltrated the computers of hive i think in late 2022 middle of 2022 and for about 6 months they were they were inside the Hive's computers. Uh, they managed to extract the keys for over 300 uh, victims. And in, in January, they, you know, they physically seized the sites, took down all of Hive's uh, infrastructure, were able to uh, provide decryption keys to these hundreds of victims. They, they estimate that, that they averted about $130 million in ransomware payments and hive by all accounts has appears to have ceased operations since then so i th- i think my point is that that law enforcement regulators military intelligence they're experimenting with these other levers you know beyond just technical controls to protect the victim or uh, indictments and arrests to dissuade the criminals uh, and i think some of those experiments will will prove to be more successful and others will prove to be less successful but this kind of proactive forward reaching aggressive response i think is necessary and i i have a lot of hope for it if i may just add one last point to that i think where we have to be realistic is that you're you're dealing with enormous amounts of money people who are highly motivated well organized and and doing very well from this crime, so you know we, we can't uh, we shouldn't anticipate turning a corner instantly. It, it will take time, and uh, I think these efforts by law enforcement are promising, even if they haven't all had the kind of effect that we would have hoped for.
1: So hopefully, we're all feeling a bit more hopeful right now um, <laughs> after that. Thank you. So I, I can't help but ask you about you know the shiny new tech object. So. With the caveat that we know that ChatGPT only came out like at the end of last year. But there's been some discussion already about the impact that generative AI can have on cybercrime and ransomware. What are your thoughts on that? Where do you see it having an impact or what do you think is just part of the hype?
0: Yes, I'm I'm gonna caveat this answer again. I feel like I've been doing a lot of caveating. Uh, but there's a, a sort of truism in technology that says that the you know the impact of a of a massive leap forward in technology is always overestimated in the short term and underestimated in the long term. And, you know, I'll, I'll put, I'll put my name down with all the people who really didn't see the chat GPT uh, revolution coming or really didn't anticipate the the impact it would have. Uh, and my point being to say that we may see some very far reaching Changes as a result of this technology, just as we're likely to see some very far-reaching changes in other spheres of technology in society. But if we look at the immediate short term, the impact hasn't been huge. What we've seen is evidence that tools like ChatGPT can be used to develop new malicious software or to change, to dat or morph Existing malicious software so that it's less easy to detect. Now that's not a, that's not a revolution. That's an, that's an evolution. This, this process of adapting, morphing, you know, redeveloping malicious software is as old as cybercrime. But I think there's an argument to be made that as tooling improves and that kind of capability becomes available to uh, more people that the the barrier to entry for cybercrime gets lower and you can expect to see the the, the threat exaggerate, expand. Uh, so that's the one impact that I think is clear to see and where there's already evidence that it's happening. The second impact that people are anticipating, but I haven't yet seen, which is to say it's not happening, but I haven't yet seen it, is that, you know, GPT is almost custom-built to generate new language. And we know that probably the most common means uh, deployed by by these criminals to gain access to networks is is via phishing. So they have to write an email that is going to capture your attention, is going to be believable enough, convincing enough that you will that you'll take action in response to it. Click on a link, download some software, engage with them, whatever the case may or may be. And of course, for a a non-English speaker, that's difficult to do if you're targeting, you know, an English speaking business person or person in business. And so I think tools like ChatGPT are very likely to enable that to be done faster and maybe better. Again, not entirely a revolution, but I, I think we can absolutely anticipate evolution there. Incidentally, as a side note, you know another vector that we see is that criminals compromise an email account and then insert themselves into an existing email thread uh, in order to gain credibility. So you know, if I was sending email to you now, we were involved in an email conversation. They would drop into that conversation uh, and act as one or the other of us and, and therefore have a sort of um, implied credibility. Now, again, ChatGPT or something like it would be, I think, very good at taking something that you and me have already said and, you know, reshaping it into something else. Again, adding to credibility. And then the, the final thing that I see, and again, I'm not sure that we've actually observed this, but I'm really anticipating it, is that it will allow these criminals to move into regions where they're not familiar with the language and... I think that has two implications. The first is that it maybe opens up this form of crime to actors from other regions, you know, regions where maybe they, they, they struggle to find the mastery of typical business languages like English, um, or French. So that might be the one change. So more actors from more diverse regions coming into the crime, but also opening up regions to the actors that are already in the crime. So, you know, I mentioned before that China, Japan, India, Poland seem to be underrepresented in our uh, victim statistics. And we think that language plays a role there. And so what I think we can anticipate is that as tools that develop language become available, threat actors will, will be able to overcome that barrier of language and start uh, not only targeting, but also interacting with victims in those in those regions.
1: So, Charles, before we wrap up, you know, is there anything else you would like to add? Any parting words, anything, you know, that I didn't ask that you wish I had asked?
0: Th- thanks for that opportunity. You know, I've, I've, I've got one kind of hobby horse. I, I, I like to say that the, the, the mafia isn't stopped by putting better locks on our doors. Uh, and I think there's a similar dynamic at play with crimes like cyber extortion it's it's a powerful successful form of crime that's supported by and enabled by uh, you know a very powerful set of systemic factors and i think that to stop a crime like this we need to collectively stand up against it and it's wonderful to see the activity that uh, that law enforcement is doing and it's wonderful to see you know regulatory mechanisms being brought to bear but i also think that uh, communally, as societies, as, um, citizens of cyberspace, that, uh, we could do more to think about how we protect and support one another in uh, standing up to a crime that's effectively commercialized bullying. And, you know, I strongly believe that, uh, you know, bullies need to be stood up to, and that's not just about you know, bringing in the police or the big guns. That's also about how we think about the crime and how we think about our our place as potential victims in, uh, in a digital society.
1: I think that's a great point to end. Charles, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath our latest Lover Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sofia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.